Let us pray. O Lord, our governor, whose glory is in all the world, we commend this, our nation, to thy merciful care, that being guided by thy providence, we may dwell secure in thy peace. Grant to the President of the United States and to all in authority wisdom and strength to know and to do thy will. Fill them with a love of truth and righteousness. Make them ever mindful of their calling to serve this people in thy fear. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Okay. Well, welcome back. Um, just um, by way of an announcement, uh, this will probably be, God willing, the last class on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, next Sunday, we are going to take a break, and we are going to have a special presentation. Those of you who are at the 8 o'clock service already heard me announce this. We're going to have a special um, rector's forum on the Anglican Church of North America. Um, the bishop has asked that every parish have a special meeting just to inform people, answer any questions that may, they may have prior to the vote that's going to take place this spring at the diocesan convention on affiliation. And as most of you know, we are moving in that direction. Uh, having left the Episcopal Church, we're now moving toward affiliation with the Anglican Church of North America. And um, you may have some questions about that. And so the bishop has asked that every parish hold a special meeting. So we're going to do that next Sunday uh, during the Rector's Forum. So uh, we will finish up the Sermon on the Mount today. We'll do that next week, answer any questions that you may have, and then the week following we'll start a new series. Okay? Sound good? All right. Very good. All right, well, today we pick up here toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. As we said last week, Jesus is giving us some closing comments, pulling together a number of themes. And, of course, we said that the great theme of the Sermon on the Mount is what does it look like to be kingdom people in a fallen and broken world? And then we came last week to the question, well, if this is what it looks like, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, then how do you get there? How do you, how do you become a citizen? How do you become a subject of the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And we said that Jesus spells that out for us in chapter 7, verses 12 and following. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus is saying, if you want to become a citizen of the kingdom, a subject of the king, with all of the rights, honors, and the privileges that that citizenship holds, he says you have to enter through the narrow gate. We ask the question, well, what's the narrow gate? Well, of course, Jesus is the narrow gate. He makes that point very clear in John's gospel. He says, I am the door. I am the gate to the sheep pen. All others who've tried to come in by some other means are robbers and thieves. He said, strive to enter through this narrow gate. Now, we said that that's offensive to many people today. Many people find this doctrine of radical particularity uh, to be politically incorrect. But we said we need to look at this not from a human point of view, but from God's point of view. And God's point of view is the fact that there is a way, and we should rejoice in that. God is under no obligation to save anybody. The fact that he saves a few shows that he's merciful. The fact that he saves many shows that he is great in mercy. So the fact that God has provided a means of escape, a means by which we can become citizens of his kingdom, be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, well, that is mercy and that is grace, and we rejoice in it. But is that the end of the journey? 
Once you enter through the narrow gate, is that all there is? Well, obviously not, because Jesus doesn't finish there with enter through the narrow gate. He encourages us, once we have entered through the narrow gate, to beware of all those things that would seek to pull us off the path. And that's where we pick up today. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and following. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will recognize them by their fruits. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So that brings us then to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So what happens after we've entered through the narrow gate? Jesus says we need to beware of ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. Some years ago, my son and I, my second son and I, Jackson, took a trip. I, I used to always try to take the boys when they were in high school on a trip. Each child got one trip with dad during the year, and I had just taken my eldest to Greece. Uh, we had I'd been teaching on the journeys of St. Paul, and so he had been with me to Greece, to the Greece, Greek Isles, and I came home and I said to the other son, he said, well, I didn't get to go to Greece. And I said, well, where would you like to go? I said, we're a little bit out of cash, so you can't go overseas. Where do you want to go? He says, I want to go out west. So he and I took a trip. We flew out to Cody, Wyoming, and we visited the Buffalo Bill Museum, which incidentally, if you've never been there, it is phenomenal. Well worth the trip just to that museum alone, great museum of the American West. And then we took a trip, we took a, rented a car, and we drove up to the Little Bighorn uh, so that I could see and he could see the Little Bighorn National Battlefield. I've always been fascinated, as many of you know, by the war between the states and, and also by the Indian War period. And so I'd always wanted to see uh, the Little Bighorn Battlefield. And I can tell you, I've been to many battlefields over the course of my life, but that one, while many of them are inspirational, that one was haunting. I can actually say that I, it gave me an eerie feeling to hike around the Little Bighorn Battlefield, in large measure because we really don't know what happened to that portion of Custer's command. We all know, they just wiped out. What were those final moments like? You don't know. And uh, they've done a remarkable job there because they've got these, they have, when, when the soldiers fell, they actually erected a, a marker right where the soldiers fell. So it's not like they were, all the bodies were collected and then placed in a national cemetery and you don't know where anybody fell. You know exactly where the soldiers fell. 
and exactly where the Sioux and the Cheyenne warriors fell as well. So it, it's a very moving, but it's also a very eerie kind of place. But I've been reading up on it, and I was, I was just all excited, and we had our hiking boots, and I was ready to go right down, and I, I, was, I'm, I wanted to be right down there where all the action took place. And so we started down a path, and we got just a few hundred yards down that path, and, and I could see a number of those markers off to the, the left. It was the, the company commanded by Captain Miles Keough, and I wanted to go and see him because he had fought at Gettysburg, and I wanted to go see where Captain Keough fell. And so we're making our way down, and about 500 yards down, we saw this sign. <laughs> Caution, rattlesnakes. Now, I got to tell you, I can handle rats and spiders and almost, I hate snakes. I absolutely hate them. I mean, and when you see a sign that says, caution, rattlesnake, and you can see the path. See, it's right there. And, and I, it was calling me. I mean, it was really calling me. So I said, well, let, let's go. And so we started down the path. We got a little bit further down, and it was a much bigger sign that said, stay on the path, rattlesnakes. And I turned around to Jackson, I said, we're, we're out of here. And we, <laughs> we went right back up onto the path. Well, Jesus is basically saying the same thing to us here in Matthew chapter 7, isn't he? He's saying, enter through the narrow gate, but once you've entered through the narrow gate, you need to what? Stay on the path. You need to stay on the path. Why? Because there be snakes and wolves. And St. Peter says, lions out there. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about, Peter says, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour you. Now, this is a very important thing to remember about the Christian life. The devil is not likely to take note of somebody who's not a believer in large measure because he already controls them to a certain degree. He's concerned about when we suddenly change our allegiance from him to Jesus Christ. Then all of a sudden we begin to get his attention. And the more we follow hard after Jesus Christ, the more we will get the enemy's attention. What's that old phrase that pilots in World War II used to use? You only catch flack when you're over the target. So if we start down the path, Jesus is warning us to be careful. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Once we've entered through the gate, we need to stay on the path because we are engaged in spiritual war, my friends. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there for just a moment. Very important section in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says this, verses 10 and following, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And he goes through this whole catalog of armament. But his point is very simple. 
We're in a battle. As Bishop Lawrence likes to say, when you become a Christian, you don't sign on to a cruise ship. It's a battleship. Now, we know who's won the war. But we're still engaged in a big mop-up operation. And there will still be casualties. and There will still be struggles. And so we are being told here that once you enter through that narrow gate, be careful that you do not wander off the path lest you be picked off. That's the warning that we are getting. It's interesting to note, by the way, there in Ephesians chapter 6, that this whole section on putting on the whole armor of God and of spiritual warfare follows immediately after Paul's teaching on marriage, husbands and wives, and parents and children. Isn't that interesting? He talks about the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children, and then he says, now put on the full armor of God. Which is to say that in a Western culture, I think that's where the attack is really coming. It's coming in the family. That's where we're beginning to see it really take place. Why? Because family is foundational to any society. And so as parents and as grandparents, we have a special obligation to stay on the path. To stay on the path, and when we see false prophets, to recognize them. Now that raises the whole question, how do you recognize false prophets? How do you recognize ravenous wolves? How do you recognize rattlesnakes? I'm not a herpetologist. I'm not an expert on snakes. That's why I said all snakes, as far as I'm concerned, are bad snakes. You know, the only good snake is a dead snake. I know that's not true, but that's the way I feel about it. Somebody says, well, you need to take a look at I'm not getting close enough to look. I've just got to be honest with you. It's just not happening. But, you know, there are those who can identify. And they say, well, that's, that's, that's not a bad, that's a harmless snake. Well, how do you determine a true prophet from a false prophet? So that you're not lured away, following after every wind of doctrine that might blow you in any direction whatsoever. Well, Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. You will therefore recognize them by their fruits. What does Jesus mean here? Well, he means primarily that you will recognize them by their teaching. You'll recognize them by their doctrine. I don't think it's any mistake that we're having this last section here and then we're beginning the series on ACNA because one of the reasons why we left the Episcopal Church was because there was a lot of false doctrine, as much as we hate to say it. Some of us raised cradle Episcopalians, but nevertheless, we were facing false doctrine. Well, what kind of false doctrine are we faced with? What are we hearing in the world today? Well, for false prophets, there is no narrow gate. You want to know what a false prophet is? Listen to their teaching, and if there is no narrow gate, that's a false prophet. Again, the idea of a narrow gate, the idea that you are saved by only one means, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, well, that's offensive to our world. But a false prophet will come along and basically tell you, well, always eventually go to God. All paths eventually end up in the same destination. All rivers of faith eventually flow into the vast great sea of truth. Now, some paths are a little more circuitous than others. But eventually we all end up in the same 
place. Well, as I said last week, Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 14, that's not true. He doesn't say there are many paths, some are more direct than others. He said there's one path and every other path is a dead end. He said there's one gate to the sheep pen. Every other means is a means of robbery or thievery. So when you listen to preachers, when you listen to teachers, first thing you need to be listening for is the narrow gate. I always tell people, if you go to a church and in the first three sermons you don't hear the message of salvation, get out of there. Go someplace else because whatever they are preaching, it may be good advice. The world is filled with good advice, but it is not necessarily good news. So you will find that with false prophets, one way to recognize them is that there is no narrow gate. The gate is broad for them, but Jesus said that is the way that leads to destruction. That's the first thing. For false prophets, actually, there's no disturbing doctrine whatsoever. <laughs> Jeremiah says, these are a people, and he was speaking about the religious leaders of his day, these are a people, he said, who dress my wound lightly. They dress my people's wound lightly lightly. They are not taking the wound seriously. Well, let me tell you, the wound that we have, the wound of sin is so serious that God sent his own son into the world to deal with it. Somebody once said, God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. <laughs> Those of you who are on the vestry know how true that really is. I mean, he didn't send a committee. He sent his son. The situation was so desperate, it required coming down himself and dealing with the problem. But with false prophets, there are no disturbing doctrines. There's no such thing as original sin. There's only original blessing, original goodness, but no original sin. But what does the Scripture teach? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a minute and turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51, if you're familiar with it, is David's great confession of sin. It's after he had been caught doing what not, should not be done with Uriah's wife, and then in an effort to avoid scandal, had had Uriah killed. And then he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Uh, David thought that he could hide it from the people. Even in those days, royal families were afraid of scandal. And so he was trying to hide it from the people, and he did a pretty good job of hiding it from the people. But the problem was that he could not hide it from God, because God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. And God raised up a prophet to go and confront David, and he did. And when David realized there was no place to hide and he had been found out, he confessed his sin in Psalm 51. Listen to what he says. He says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love.'" According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And here's the critical passage. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So, David is not saying, I'm a sinner because I sin. He's saying, I sin because I'm a sinner. 
I, I was born this way. We're all OS positive. We've all got the disease. And all those things that we call sins, the lying, the cheating, the adultery, the murder, you go through the whole catalog. Those are simply the symptoms. They're not the illness. The illness is that you and I, there's something rotten in us. We're born that way. It's been passed on to us by our parents. This is, parents can pass on some destructive things, destructive genes. Well, we've been passed on a destructive gene of sin. And we've all got it. Now, you go out and you tell the world that we are all sinners, that we're all fallen, that we're all broken, that you were conceived in sin, that you're a miserable wretch. How popular do you think that's going to be? But is that the teaching of Scripture? David says that is the teaching of Scripture. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's what we all deserve. Now, of course, the good news is that even though that's what we all deserve, God, who is rich in mercy, sent His Son Jesus Christ into the world to what? Save us from ourselves. But a false teacher, a false prophet, will tell you you're fine just the way you are. You're fine just the way you are. They dress my people's wound lightly. There's no original sin with a false prophet, and therefore there is no wrath of God. There's no wrath. When was the last time you ever heard a preacher talk about the wrath of God? Anybody remember the last time? Well, take note of it. You heard it this morning, right? Here it is. The wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Well, when we think of the wrath of God, we have a tendency to think of God having wrath the way that human beings have wrath. When we think of a wrathful man or a wrathful parent, we think of somebody who what? Loses their temper, flies off the handle, doesn't have control of their emotions. Isn't that what we think of wrath? And so when we think of a wrathful deity, we immediately think of a God who loses his temper, grabs a thunderbolt, and zap. But that's not the biblical picture of wrath at all. You've heard me talk about this before, I'm sure. Wrath is simply an aspect of God's holiness. And we've already talked about it in here. Of all the adjectives that are used in the Scripture to describe God, the one that is used more than any other is holy. He is the holy one. He may be loving, he may be merciful, he may be gracious, he may be all of those things, but above all, God is holy. He is holy. And we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in the fact that there will be justice in the universe one day. That wickedness and evil and prejudice will one day be called to account. We can rejoice in that. But you can't have any kind of justice in the world unless there is a holy God. And so God is a holy God, and an aspect of His holiness is His wrath. Now, the best way that I know how to describe this is to say that it's like an allergic reaction. You know, some people just cannot tolerate shellfish. They eat it, they have a massive reaction. Sometimes it can be deadly. They can't help that. It's just who they are. Well, God is holy, and He cannot abide by sin. And if He comes into contact with it, what happens? His wrath is enraged. In the Old Testament, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice, before he went in, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. And if he went in with an impure heart, he would be struck dead by the wrath of God. 
That's what happened in the Old Testament. God didn't mess around in those days. Now, the question is this, how do you get him out? See, nobody else was permitted to go in. So the high priest always went in with a rope tied around his ankle so that if he was struck dead, you'd have to reel him out like a great fish because nobody else could go into the presence of God. That just shows us that we have a holy God. Now, don't get me wrong, we have a God of eminence, a God who's come down in the person of Jesus Christ and got close to us. But if you look at God in the Old Testament, he was the God of Sinai. Cordon off this mountain. Do not even let an animal place its hoof on the mountain. If it does, it would have to die. It was an emphasis upon God's holiness. And it is that holy, righteous God who came down to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? He had to deal with his wrath. That's what the cross is all about, my friends. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is about extinguishing a holy God's wrath against a sinful and a fallen humanity. That's what that's all about. I said in, in the Bible study uh, earlier this week, it's like a freight train is coming toward us. And somebody steps between us and that freight train and takes the punishment upon himself. That's what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. He pays the price that we deserve to pay. We owed a debt that we couldn't pay, so he paid a debt he didn't owe that we might go free. I think the most powerful illustration that I know of in the Bible of this, aside from the cross itself, is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and I know I've shared this with you before, but it's so important that we understand this. This was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And she was brought before Jesus, and the charge was she'd been caught in the act of adultery. I've always wondered where the Pharisees were that they caught her in the act. <laughs> Text never says that, does it? They bring her, bring her before Jesus, throw her down, and say, we've caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, if I'd have been Jesus... And you can all rejoice that I'm not. But if I had been, the first thing I would have said is, where were you? Looking through keyholes, trying to figure out. But of course, the point of the story is not that these men were guilty. The point of the story was that they were simply using this woman to discredit Jesus. That was the whole point. So they bring her in and they throw her down before Jesus. And it's a trap. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees were always out there trying to entrap Jesus. And this was a trap. No matter how Jesus answered, they thought they had him. Because he's been out there preaching about peace and love and mercy and forgiveness. But he'd also said that he had not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So you can't have it both ways, they thought. Here's a woman caught in the act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned. What do you say? However he answers, he's in trouble. And the text says Jesus didn't say anything. He simply knelt down in the ground and he wrote with his finger. Now, the text never tells us what he wrote. For generations, evangelical scholars have assumed that he was writing down the sins of the people who were standing there. But actually, Ken Bailey, who's a renowned, uh, just died recently, unfortunately, but I, I actually had a pr privilege of getting to know him. He was a canon theologian in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. He was a world-renowned New Testament scholar, and he grew up in the Middle East, so he understood uh, the culture. He said he knew exactly what Jesus wrote. <laughs> Jesus wrote from the Old Testament law, she shall be stoned. But you see, that same law that said she shall be stoned also said that her accusers had to cast the first stone. Now, here's the context. And those of you who are going with me to the Holy Land, you're going to actually stand on the spot where this took place. 
During the festival, and this took place during the festival, the Romans would bring in added troops, and they would be quartered at a place called the Antonia Fortress. It's this massive place where they were garrisoned in Jerusalem. This event took place right near the Golden Gate, the main entrance into Jerusalem. Now, by this point, Jews had lost the right to put people to death for capital crimes. Only the Romans could do it. That's why the Romans crucified Jesus. So this woman is brought in. She's thrown down. There are Roman soldiers up there. Their job is to keep the peace. And the Jews were always fermenting all kinds of trouble or all kinds of messianic uprisings. So the, the Roman soldiers are anxious. They see a crowd gathering. They see this man down there who appears to be a rabbi. They brought this woman in. She's there on the ground before him. And the scribes and the Pharisees are there. And they're afraid there's going to be trouble. So they're standing up there on the parapets, looking down. And Jesus knows they're looking down. And so he writes in the sand, this woman should be stoned. Now up to this point, they're trying to discredit Jesus. But then we're told he knelt down and he wrote again. And Ken Bailey said what he wrote was, and you who accuse her must cast the first stone. And those Jewish religious leaders, in all their piety, stand there and they look at the woman and then they look up at those Roman soldiers and they know that if they take action what's going to happen those Roman soldiers are coming down to arrest them and so they have to make a decision and so they look at the woman they look at the Roman soldiers they look at the woman they look at Jesus they look at the woman they look at the Roman soldiers and then one by one they drop their stones and they walk away and Jesus has shamed them publicly. And then he turns to the woman and he said, where are they who accuse you? And she said, Lord, they're all gone. And he said, go and sin no more. Now, what did Jesus do? Well, that's a turning point in John's gospel. Because from that point forward, you will notice they no longer want to discredit Jesus. They want to kill him. He's got to go. Because he's shamed them. He's cast a light on them and all the things that they were doing in darkness. And they did. From that point forward, they conspire to kill him, and they do. But what Jesus did was he stepped between this woman's sin and the wrath of those religious leaders, and he did what? He took it upon himself. She went free, but he had to die now. You realize that's what God has done for you? He stepped between the wrath of a holy and righteous God and your sin, and he took that punishment upon himself. Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. Now that's the message of the gospel. The problem is the world finds that offensive. Finds it offensive. You say, really? This is Richard Dawkins speaking. He said, the God of the Bible is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Aside from the fact that he writes very well, that's the view of the world, you see. 
That's the view of the world. That's the God of the Bible, not the God who steps between his own wrath and our judgment and takes it upon himself, but a capricious bully. You want to know a false teacher? That's a false teacher, folks. False teacher. No wrath of God, and therefore no need for penal substitution. No call to a higher living. No call to holiness. I don't know about you, but I want to be called to account, and I want to be called to a higher place. I do. I sometimes snap at my wife. Believe it or not. <laughs> sometimes I get frustrated with the kids. Sometimes the dog irritates the dickens out of me. And sometimes I come to work realizing that I'm nothing but a wretch. And the last thing that I want to be told is, you're fine just the way you are. Because in my heart of hearts, I know I'm not fine the way I am, and I want to be better than I am. The wonderful message of the gospel is that I can be by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you want to be better than you are? The world says you're fine just the way you are. Well, then let me end it all right now because I'm not fine the way I am, and we know it. And we know it. So you'll know them by their false doctrine. You'll know them by their works, and you'll know them by their cheap grace. We know that we're all saved by grace through faith, but there is such a thing as cheap grace. What is cheap grace? Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it so well. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is the grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And if there was anybody that understood what that was all about, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know who he was? Most of you probably know who he was. He was a German theologian. He was part of the confessing church in Germany that stood against the Nazis. And he was considered to be such a threat to Hitler because of his stand for the gospel that he was imprisoned, held in a concentration camp for the duration of the war, and he was the last man executed by personal order of the Fuhrer. You would have thought it would have been some allied leader that would have been the threat. It was a German pastor. H. Richard Niebuhr, great theologian, said, A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's false teaching, my friends, in a nutshell. Whenever you hear a God without wrath bringing people into a kingdom who have no sin, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross, that's false teaching. Jesus said, don't let them lure you off the path. And then Jesus rounds out the Sermon on the Mount by talking about building our house on something solid. Therefore, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. In 1173, construction was started on a free standing 
campanile, I think is how the Italians pronounce it, a freestanding bell tower, bell tower in the cathedral city of Pisa. It was to be a magnificent building that would call the people of the entire cathedral city to worship. They started construction on it in 1173, finished it about 20 years later. And it wasn't six months before it began to list to one side. We all know what it is. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And let me tell you, just last year, they did massive restoration on this building to keep it from falling down. They're fighting a losing battle. And they're fighting a losing battle, why? Not because of the construction of the building itself, but because of the foundation. It's what the building was constructed on that was the problem. It is one thing, my friends, to enter through the narrow gate and become a Christian. It is one thing to remain on the path, but Jesus doesn't just want us to remain on the path and get our ticket punch and go to heaven. He wants us, as citizens of the kingdom, to do what? Build something that will last. Go through the narrow gate, stay on the path, but build something that will last of your life. Something that will make a difference. Now, many of us spend our whole lives trying to build a legacy. But Jesus said the true legacy can only be established when we are building on the rock. Foundation is the key. Right after this most recent hurricane, I was contacted by some friends in Beaufort who told me that some of our friends had lost homes on Fripp Island. And I felt bad for them. I really did. But my first question was, are they going back? And the answer was, yeah, they're going to go back. I said, didn't Jesus talk about this? The foolish people build their house on the what? On the sand. That's a losing battle out there. Hunting Island is a losing battle out there. Eventually, Mother Nature is going to reclaim. Some years ago, we had a hurricane that went through, and I guess it was on the New Jersey coast, and wiped out all of these people. And then they wanted the government to go ahead and give them the money to rebuild on the same spot. Jesus says, the foundation is key. The wise man builds his house not on the sand, but on the rock. Now, the parable that Jesus uses here is an interesting one. If you take a look at it and you understand the parable correctly, he's talking about two houses and the houses are identical. I want you to understand that the two houses that Jesus talks about, the wise and the foolish man, he's talking about two men. Say they're two brothers who purchased the exact same blueprints the exact same plan. It's going to be the exact same house. And they build them. But one house is in danger and one house isn't. One house is in danger because it's been built on the sand. Another has been built on the rock. But they don't know that they're in danger until what? Until Jesus says the wind blows. See, it's when the storms come that the foundation is tested. Storms are going to come into your life, my friends, sooner or later. It's been said that every single person is in one of three places. You are either heading into a storm, you're in a storm, or you've just come out of a storm. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. How many of you have ever faced storms in your life? Sooner or later, they're coming. The wind begins to pick up. And the only way in which you will know for sure that you have built upon the solid rock is when those storms come and test what you have built. 
Well, here's the question. What are you building on today? That's what Jesus wants to know. What do you have right now that is of value to you cannot ultimately be taken away? Fortune? It can be taken away. Fame? Oh, my goodness. People are so fickle. Family? Careers? Reputation? All of those things you see can be taken away from us. What exactly are you building on? Back in the 18th century, there was a man by the name of William Borden. He went to Oxford University. He was a scholar of the first rank. Many people believe that he would be one of the great leaders in England in the latter part of the 18th, the early part of the 19th century. But while he was at Oxford, William Borden came to know Jesus Christ. And instead of going into politics like everybody expected him to, he decided to become a missionary to China. Well, everybody thought that he was throwing away his life. Well, he went off to China. He made it as far as India. He didn't even get to China. When he got to India, he became deathly ill. And he was told that he would not survive. So he wrote a final note to his family. It was just a few short words, because he knew what they were thinking. He's thrown away his life. And he wrote back just these words, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Take a look at your life right now and ask yourself, can I say that? Can I say, as I look back over the course of my life, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. You can if you build your house on the rock. You can if you enter through that narrow gate. You can if you stay on the path. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom and a subject of the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He did it over 2,000 years ago, but it still speaks to us today. It is by no means a dead letter. It is a living word. It speaks to us across the years, across culture. It speaks to our hearts and to our minds. And there may be some things, Lord, that we hear in this sermon that challenge us. We may recognize that we haven't been building upon the solid foundation. And indeed, what we've been building with is not anything that's going to last. But we do know that you are a God whose property is always to have mercy. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, in to pay the price for our sin so that we can begin again. So, Lord, if what we've been building with is not going to weather the storms of life, grant that we may tear it down and start all over again, building on the foundation of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Next week, we're going to uh, have that special meeting on ACNA. Um, some of you have asked, can, is this entire series available? And uh, it is available. So if you're interested in having the whole Sermon on the Mount series available to you, I think there was one class that did not get recorded.
but the entire series will be available next week. And you even get, Jordan Gilbert has gone out, and she's a whiz at this, designed a whole special slip cover. So it's very nifty and very nice. And you can give this to your friends or to your family. Or My wife says, I can't believe anybody would give anything that you've been teaching to anybody. But at any rate, she's not always the biggest fan. You know how it is. She, she has to live with me. But if you are interested, the Sermon on the Mount will be available to you next week. We'll meet next week for ACNA. The week after that, we're going to begin something new. And as soon as I figure out what it is, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll see you in church.